0: This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Today, we begin a new series called Surviving Survival Mode. And for the next few weeks, and I want to just qualify it as God helps us, but for the next few weeks, we're going to address the question that I've made the subtitle of our series. What to do when there's nothing you can do? In other words, what do you do when you find yourself in a situation that you can't change? Now, in this life, there are some problems that you can solve. You can tweak this. You can adjust this. You can fire him. You can hire her. You can call the cops. You can move away. You can change jobs. And in so doing... Kind of take care of the problem. But but then there are also other problems that besides praying, you can't do one thing about it. You can tell the boss. You can call daddy. You can try to use force. You can be gentle. You can bring in the National Guard. But regardless of what you try to do, you can't fix the problem. And we've all found ourselves in those situations, unfixable situations, where, where you find yourself surviving, just surviving, and people ask, well, well, how are you? And you say, well, I'm here. I'm just barely keeping my head above water. I'm just hanging on. Now, for some people, survival mode shows itself in marriages. Maybe he doesn't want to change, or she doesn't want to change, but Neither wants a divorce, and so they're just stuck in a marriage. They live under the same roof, but they're complete strangers. For others, survival mode is is being stuck in a life of loneliness. They want to be married, but no one is on the horizon, except for that guy that you met online that doesn't have a job, and he wants to move in with you so you can support him and so he can enjoy the quote-unquote fringe benefits. There are plenty of bums like that, and all I have to say about that is beware. But hear an amen there? <laughs> For others, it shows itself in their kids. The, their, their kids have chosen a lifestyle, or they've chosen a, a set of friends, or they've chosen a, uh, a, a spouse or addictions that have led them down the wrong road, and, and you've tried to lecture them, or, you know, the Bible calls it nicely admonish them, but it's just created tension, and you're watching them self-destruct. For others, the survival mode is in the area of finances. Your, your financial dreams haven't come true. In fact, it appears that your financial dreams will never come true. You're, you're stuck at a low-paying job with little hope of, of advancement, and, and you just hope that a rich sheik in the Middle East, or, or one of those letters that you get from Nigeria where they've got millions of dollars they want to give you because they have no living heirs, You hope that that will actually take place. But can I just tell you, you probably shouldn't hold your breath. You've got a greater chance of becoming the Pope than you do of inheriting $100 million from somebody in Nigeria. Just telling you that. And as we look at the circumstances in our survival mode, if if you're like the rest of us, you've looked for options. When it comes to your family, you've thought about divorce. Divorce or abandoning your family, but you've seen others do that, and that rarely ever works out as well as Satan makes you think it will. You've thought about giving up on your grown kids, but they're your flesh and blood, and, and yes, you would still like to turn them over your knee and spank them until they cry real tears, but they're bigger than you and stronger than you. You've been tempted to drink yourself into oblivion or take other illegal drugs, or even abuse prescription drugs to help calm you down, but that just creates more problems. By the way, I see that happen all the time around here. You've thought about going to establishments of ill repute to fill that loneliness, but you've got enough of a conscience to where you know that isn't right. And then there's the whole internal battle that we all have. You know, we we have that tendency to compare our lives to others, and from the outside it appears that they have the perfect life, and we think, That was the life I was supposed to have. That's the type of car I was supposed to drive. That's the big house I was supposed to own. That's the type of job I was supposed to get. That's the way my kids were supposed to turn out. And if we're not careful, it's easy to get resentful of those whom we think have a perfect life. Especially when Christians, you know what? Christians can sometimes be really insensitive. Did you know that? And Christians sometimes say insensitive things that make you want to just slug them. And they say things like, oh, God is so good. He answered prayer for me the other day. And you're like, well, what prayer did he answer? And they say, well, I've been wanting to buy a new boat. My old one was getting some age on it. It was five years old. And and God was so good because the exact bass boat that I've been wanting and dreaming about, they put it on sale and I saved $5,000. And you're like, hey, buddy, let me tell you about my life. Right now, I don't care about saving $5,000 on a bass boat. All I care about is coming up with $500 to pay my rent. Don't tell me about your answers to prayer when I'm facing eviction. I think all of us at some point have had a picture of the American dream. You know, we've had a picture of what we think family is supposed to be like, two kids. Or what do they say in America? The average is two and a half kids per family. I've always wondered how that worked out. But but kids that graduate with honors and, and find jobs with Fortune 500 companies and end up being beauty queens or athletic marvels and are millionaires by the time they turn 30. You know, we all have a picture of what romance and marriage is supposed to be. You know, you marry your high school sweetheart and stay in love and be married until you both die as you're running a marathon at the ripe old age of 100. We all have in mind the good health that we think we will have until the doctor comes in and says, you need to sit down. You've got cancer, or you've got dementia, or some other major health issue that is going to cut your life short, will cause you to miss out on seeing your grandkids or great-grandkids grow up. You know, we all have in mind the vacations we want to experience and the parts of the world that that we want to travel to and the glamorous life that everybody else talks about on Facebook. And so, what happens? What happens when you realize that these things will never be reality in your life? What happens when you finally recognize that not only will you never be wealthy, but you will struggle financially all of your life? What happens when you realize that your kids will never be what you envisioned for them when they were born? What happens when you realize that you will never be able to travel the world and, and see the Eiffel Tower in France or the Taj Mahal in India? What happens when you realize that because of a previous divorce, you will always have to manage the tension with the blended family what happens when you realize these things will be reality for the rest of your life it's during those seasons of life and I've been there and you've been there when we long for the good old days you know we long for the good old days whatever you can fill in the blank when our parents paid for everything or we long for the first years of marriage where we were happy we long for the first years of parenting before our, our, our kids began acting like holy terrors and showed that they were born in Adam. Remember? With the sin nature deeply embedded in them. Or we longed for the days when we were healthy and physically. And could pretty much do anything we wanted. These crushed dreams often cause disappointment to where we feel there's no point in continuing. We feel as if there's no point in even battling to keep a relationship with our spouse or relationship with our parents or with relationship with our kids. We wonder, is there any use in trying to live a holy life? Because I try, I try, I try, but it doesn't seem to work. Unfortunately, as a pastor, I have these conversations with people all the time. and, And for those of us as pastors or counselors, those who are tasked with this responsibility of giving advice, these conversations are so difficult. And, and especially for those of us as males, because we're typically problem solvers. We like to listen for about five seconds and then tell you, here is what you need to do. Step one, do this. Step two, three. And if you do that, it'll all work out. But honestly, there are situations, heartbreaking situations, where all I can say to them is, My heart goes out to you. I wish I could help you. I can pray for you. But beyond that, I don't have any answers. I don't have any advice. Recently, I participated in the funeral about a month ago, a funeral of a man who was killed in a car crash about eight miles from here on the way to Stockton. And by the way, I received permission from his wife to tell this story this morning. But on that tragic night, his wife was actually on the phone with him when the crash took place. They were just finishing up the conversation, and he had just said, I love you, and he barely got out the words, I love you. She heard this horrible noise. The phone went dead. She began calling him over and over and over, no answer. So she had that terrible feeling in the pit of her stomach that this was not just a dropped call. So she got in her car and started driving towards Stockton and came up on the scene where there were probably a dozen or more emergency vehicles. And as we told her that her husband did not survive the crash, she collapsed onto the road. And there at the scene of the accident that night, I embraced her. I talked with her. I I prayed with her. And between sobs, she said, What makes this even more unbearable is the fact that four years ago, my son was killed on this same road about a quarter of a mile away from, our, from where my husband was just killed. And over the past few weeks, as we've talked on the phone and by text and even a couple of times this week, as we had the service for him at the Veterans Cemetery in Springfield, she has said over and over, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. What can I do? And, and I have to say... I don't know what to tell you. I know God loves you. I know God cares for you. I know He will be there for you. But she responds, I, I, I'm so mad at God. Even this past Monday, just less than a week ago, she said, I'm, I'm so upset at God. I'm angry at God. She said, I want to come to your church because you've been so caring and kind and loving and, and, and I want to let go of my anger. But she said, I just, can't do it right now. And all I can say is, I'm sorry. Try to assure her that he's a good God that loves her. He will never leave her nor forsake her. But I feel helpless because I can't do anything to take away the grief, the pain, which brings us back to the question. What to do when there's nothing you can do? Now today, I know this has been kind of a downer so far, but, but hang with me. And I want us to think of this lesson as sort of a triage as we kind of get into our series. And the word triage just means surveying the crisis and determining the level of injuries to be able to properly treat according to the seriousness of those injuries. And to, to kind of explain this, after, after I graduated from Bible college, I felt that something that might serve me well in my ministry was to get some basic medical training. And as I've told you before... Before God called me into the ministry, I was going into the med- medical field. I'd already taken prep courses to, to get a jump start on this Had visited, um, you know, diff- different colleges, but, but God had other plans for my life. But, but I figured that some basic medical knowledge would come in handy, and, which it certainly did as a missionary in, in, in both the remote Andean mountain range as well as the jungles of South America. So while living in Kansas City, I enrolled in, in Johnson County Community College. Took uh, the appropriate EMT classes, emergency emergency medical technician classes. I finished the course of study, passed everything. The only thing that I lacked was to take my state exams. And to become state certified, I I had to take a written exam as well as, uh, you know, a couple of different practical exams. And those of you that have been through that, you know all about this. And it's still a, a fairly vivid memory in my mind, but at the state exam, after prepping me, the, the state examiners ushered me into this large room that they had configured into a major trauma scene. And even though the injuries were all staged, yet it was very graphic and even overwhelming as I looked at, looked at the multiple victims with different types of, uh, of serious injuries. There was blood everywhere, people with different levels of trauma, broken bones, flesh wounds, if you had a weak stomach, this was not a place for you. But when they threw me in there, it was like, whoa. You know, I, I thought I was prepared for a situation like this. I, this had been part of our training, but it was still overwhelming. And But I had to go in there, and, and in just a matter of a few seconds, I had to triage the situation, determine, you know, the, the victims that had the most severe and life-threatening injuries. Then I had to use what I'd learned in, in my training to stabilize them until more qualified medical personnel could arrive, and they could be transported, transported to a trauma center. Well, well today, maybe if, if we could, let's just look at this lesson as, uh, as a triage. And even though these lessons will speak to everyone, yet today, I want to talk directly to those who are in a situation that is fairly serious. And you feel that you're just in survival mode. And besides praying, you don't, you can't do anything about it. So if that's you, as God helps me, I, I want to direct my thoughts to you today. Now, at the very epicenter of, of seasons of survival mode is a question that almost always pops up in our minds. Now, we may not ask the question out loud, but but it's kind of like the elephant in the room. You know what the elephant in the room is? You know, it's there. We're all thinking it. We may not say it, but we're all thinking it. So, today, let's bring this question out into the open and spend some time discussing it. And actually, this question is is kind of a run-on question. And in, in grammar class, they, they taught us about run-on sentences, you know, sentences that had more than one thought and just kind of went on and on and This question will be a run-on question that has three different questions to it. But for today, we're going to look at it as one question. Does God know? Does God care? Does God hear? And we all know the textbook answer, but let me give it to you anyway. Yes, God knows. Yes, God cares. Yes, God hears. It's, it's not like God uh, says, you know, I'll, I'll get to you when I can. You know, I'm busy right now. I'm trying to triage this triage the situation across the world. Don't, don't you know that we're in the middle of a pandemic? And, and right now, India needs me more than you need me. And they've got 1.4 billion people. So you need to take a number. Wait your turn. But that, that's not God. Does God know? Class, what's the answer? Does God care? Does God hear? Now, one more thing before we go to our Scripture. I I, want to poke around a little bit this morning. Does that make you a bit nervous? And and some of you may not like me for this. uh, But there's probably a little bit of hypocrisy in you today. In fact, there's probably a little bit of hypocrisy in all of us. Let me tell you why I say that. Because for all of us here, there has been that time. There's been that night in our lives, maybe a day in our lives, a weekend in our lives, an hour in our lives, a, a situation in our lives where we did not want to hear the voice of God, nor did we want to feel the presence of God. Here's the reason: because we were planning to sin. We had already planned the sin out. You know, for some of us, the sin was in the back seat. Maybe it was packed on ice. Maybe it was in a little baggy. We just hoped the police didn't pull us over. Maybe the sin was going to happen with another person. Maybe it was a website. But we were planning to sin. And at that particular time, we did not want to hear the voice of God. We did not want to turn on some worship music and say, Oh God, before I sin, I want to exalt you and just worship you and feel your presence. No, we did not want to do that. In fact, instead of worship music, maybe we turned on the song, you know, Born to be Wild, or, or, or Dancing with the Devil, or, or, or whatever. And we tried to shut out God's voice. But anyway, here's the hypocrisy in a lot of us. Isn't it amazing that when we don't want to hear God's voice because we're going to do something wrong, we do our very best to shut Him out, and we're fine with His silence. We don't want to hear him. We don't want to feel him because we're doing something wrong. But when we go through one of those seasons when God seems to be silent, what happens? We we begin to question God God, why are you so silent? Where are you? Do, Do you know? Do you care? Do you hear? But listen up, just as during those moments when you wanted to sin and you tried to tune out the voice and the presence of God, yet you still knew that God was there by the same token right now, and this is for some of you in these dark times, in this season of survival mode, in this desert season, may I remind you that God is also still present. Now to bring us into the heart of our lesson, I want to go to a very familiar story involving a man by the name of John the Baptizer. Now, before you correct me and say, Joe, his name is actually John the Baptist, Um, I know that. But calling him John the Baptist is a bit confusing, because it causes people to think that he was a Baptist. And I know that John the Baptist is an iconic figure for our Baptist friends, just as Peter is an iconic figure for our Catholic friends. But just so you know, Peter was not a Catholic, nor was John the Baptist a Baptist. Sorry for you Baptists that are here and that are listening. He got that name just because... He baptized John the Baptist. And and today, rather than reading his account word for word out of the Bible, I normally do that, but I would like to kind of in my own words tell John's story. The the reason is because his story is is woven into all four Gospels, and so we would have to be in and out, back and forth in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to get all the details. Later you can read the account, and I would encourage you to fact check me on everything I say today, but I will try to be accurate in telling his story. Here we go. One day, Jesus was in Galilee. Now, let me just kind of show you. You can't see it very well, but this is Galilee. This is the the country of Israel, Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee. Right here is the state, the region, the province of, of Galilee. And there in Galilee, Jesus was teaching and training some of his core leaders. Well, about that time, a group of men walked up to Jesus and said, Jesus, We're some of John the Baptist's disciples, and and he sent us to ask you a question. And you can read the question in Luke chapter 7, verse 20. But they said, Jesus, are you really the Messiah? John wants to know if you're you're the one that we've all been waiting on all these years, or or do we need to look for someone else? Are, are, Are you really the one? Now, have you ever wondered why John himself didn't go to Jesus to ask this question? Have you ever wondered? Well, the reason was because John couldn't. Do you know why he couldn't? He was in prison. Why was he in prison? Well, let me go down just a little rabbit trail here and explain something that was fascinating to me. John found himself in prison because during some of his sermons, he began taking pot shots at one of the area political leaders. You know, John uh, did a lot of ministry up and down the Jordan River. Right here's the Jordan River, again, connecting kind of the uh, Dead Sea and, and the Sea of Galilee. There's the Jordan River. And, and that's kind of where, where John was, was ministering. And, and there was a king in that area. You've heard his name, King Herod. Now, granted, there were a bunch of King Herods. But, but this King Herod was the son of the King Herod that, that slaughtered all the babies in Bethlehem during the Christmas story, because he wanted to kill baby Jesus. So, so son, King Herod, and, and his name was actually Herod Antipas. And, and I'm going to ask you really just to track with me, because this is fascinating. His name was Herod Antipas, Antipas, and he was the tetrarch, which tetrarch just means ruler of one of the four divisions of a province or a country. But, but King Herod Antipas had a brother, actually he was a half-brother, and, and, and I know this is crazy, but he was also named Herod. So Herod had a brother named Herod, and his name was actually Herod Philip. And, and why so many Herods? Have, have you ever done research? Well, it's probably an ego thing because the name Herod actually means Heroic. And so it seems that kings named their kids Herod, anticipating that they would become heroic. And In fact, in this family, there was even a niece named Herodias, who was the daughter of a brother to these two Herod brothers. For some reason, he wasn't named Herod. Instead, he was named Aristobulus. But he named his daughter Herodias. So anyway, Herod Antipas is the king of the area. His brother is Herod Philip. Well, one day Herod Philip decided to get married. And, and who do you think he married? And what I'm about to tell you would, would make days of our lives seem like a Christian program. <laughs> Herod Philip decided to marry his niece Herodias. Yeah, that's right. He married his niece. Now We, we don't even do this in Cedar County. They might do it in the St. Clair County. I don't know about that, but uh, that was a boo statement for sure. Herod Philip married his niece, Herodias. Well, sometime later, Herod Philip went to Rome without his his wife, uh, niece, Herodias, for an extended trip. And while he was in Rome, would you believe that his wife slash niece had an affair with his brother, King Herod Antipas, which of course was her other uncle. And I got to wonder about this. What, what do you think Herodias called him? Did she call him uncle? Or honey? Or honey uncle? Or <laughs> sugar uncle? or I mean, this is kinky. Well, when Herod Philip got back into town, he found out that his brother, the king, had stolen his wife, their niece. And so Herodias leaves Uncle Herod for Uncle Herod. Yeah, she, she leaves Uncle Herod Philip for Uncle Herod Antipas, and they get married. Aren't you glad you came to church today to learn this? You know, we think our society is messed up today, and it is. But the good old days weren't so good either. Well, this is a big scandal, and, and even though there's no Twitter, there's no Facebook, no tabloids uh, at the checkout counter of the grocery stores, Everybody finds out what happened. So this is very disturbing in any culture, but especially in Jewish culture. So, so John the Baptist, and we're still on our rabbit trail. This was a long rabbit trail. But John the Baptist, as he's preaching and teaching along the Jordan River, he specifically mentions the sins of their society. And he says, case in point, our political leaders are leading the way in their debauchery. And remember a couple of weeks ago I said debauchery just means immorality or impurity squared or maybe to the 10th power. It's, it's, it's big-time immorality, and our, our leaders are leading the way in this, and our own King Herod has had an affair with his brother's wife, who was their niece, and they've now fallen in love, and Herodias has switched uncles and husbands, and they've gotten married. Well, John's public criticism got back to King Herod, and, and he was upset at this eccentric preacher, and remember, John the Baptist wore animal skins and ate locusts. But he was not nearly as upset as Herodias, his wife, and again, niece. John was arrested and thrown into the dungeon, but not just thrown into any dungeon. Herod has him sent to basically the Siberia, or, or the most desolate place in Israel, a place out in the middle of the desert called Machiris. And here it is. This is the Dead Sea. And for those of you that have been to Israel, and if you haven't been to Israel, I I really hope you get an opportunity to go sometime because that was a call that will cause the Bible to just come alive. But everything is dead here. And you've got such a high content of salt and and you've got the Dead Sea that is the lowest place, uh, even lower than Death Valley, um, you know, out west. And so here is Machiris. Nothing grows there except for <clears throat> lizards and, and, and snakes. And um, he was more than likely, here in Machiris, taken to a hilltop and put in this fortress, this next picture here. And, and this is what has been excavated. It's on top of one of these hills like this. And, uh, of course, the Dead Sea would be down below. And so you can see it's just a desolate area. And this is uh, one of Herod's fortresses right here. And they, they feel that more than likely that's where John the Baptist w- was taken and put in a dungeon. Yeah, you know, you say, well, Joe, wh- why are you showing us these maps and pictures? This is so significant. And by the way, I'm sorry if you're listening on radio because you're going... Cr- you're going to miss out on some of this here. But, but anyway, John the Baptist is, is, is put in, in prison, in the dungeon, in a God-forsaken place. Time goes by, time goes by, weeks, months, a year, and maybe even up to a year and a half. What happens when you go through a difficult season for an extended period of time? What happens when you pray to God? God. But there's nothing but silence. What happens? You begin to have doubts, don't you? I know. You begin to have doubts. You begin to question God. Does he know? Does he care? Does he hear? What happens when you pray and pray and pray? Nothing but silence. You begin to doubt. Now, here's the interesting thing. Jesus loved John the Baptist. In fact, no one even knew Jesus on a large scale until one day John is baptizing in the Jordan River and he sees Jesus walking up in the distance. He says, look over there. There is someone that I'm not even worthy to be able to tie his shoelaces Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He presented him as the Messiah. But by now, John the Baptist has been in prison long enough to where he's having doubts. You know what that tells me? We're vulnerable to having doubts ourselves. If John the Baptist had his doubts... And I don't think any of us here would be any better than John the Baptist. In fact, uh, Christ said that there is no one born of woman that is greater than John the Baptist. He was a great, great man. But if he had his doubts, I don't think we need to feel devastated when a few doubts come floating through our minds. Now... Out of curiosity, what do you think happened when Jesus heard that John was put in prison? Well, Jesus being the compassionate and loving person he was, you would think that he would go visit John, wouldn't you? I mean, at least send a couple of disciples to Machiris to visit. Maybe send him a care package with, uh, with some loaves and fish. Well, if you haven't studied this account, it will surprise you what Jesus did. He withdrew, he withdrew to, to Capernaum. And if you're reading your Bible and and you haven't been to Israel and you haven't studied geography, you're like, oh, we went to Capernaum. Keep on reading. So let me stop here and explain because this is so interesting. So again, when, when, when John was arrested, they took him here. Desolate. One of the most desolate places in the country. But when Jesus found out John was arrested, where did Jesus go? He went to Capernaum, right by the Sea of Galilee. Now, if you don't know the area, you're probably just going to be, ho oh, interesting, you went to Capernaum. But this is a picture of a modern-day Capernaum. Let's go to the next slide here. This right here is modern-day Capernaum. This right here they this is where they believe peter was actually peter's house was and so they built a big building over it and those of you that have been to israel you remember this building we went through it we've been through it several times on on our tours but this right here is the sea of galilee look how lush it is and here's the reason i tell you this this is how we feel many times when we feel alone when we're in survival mode we would kind of expect people to let us down, but what really does a number on us is when our mind plays tricks on us and makes us, makes us think that while we're in the desert suffering, Jesus has gone to the beach. And that is why after John... After being in the dungeon for over a year, he asked the guys who were bringing him food, see, in the dungeon, they didn't feed you. You had to have friends to bring you food. And so when the guys came in there to bring him food, he said, would you please go to Jesus? I I presented him as the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, but would you go to Jesus and ask him, are you really the one? Well, Jesus said, guys, take this message back to John give him my regards tell him i am the one i'm healing people i'm causing the lame to walk the blind to see i'm the one but here's something so fascinating this this is one of the reasons i love reading the bible this is so powerful because right after the guys leave to go back to john to give him the message jesus says the most interesting yet confusing yet fascinating thing he says this in matthew chapter 11 verse 6 Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Have you ever thought about that? I bet you haven't, because I hadn't. What does that mean? What does it mean to not fall away on account of me? Well, let me just rephrase that statement and and say it in a couple of different ways like we might say it today. Blessed is the one who does not think God's silence is his absence. Or blessed is the one who, who, when God doesn't answer certain prayers, still trusts God and believes in him. Blessed is the one when, when no one checks up on you and even seems to care, including Jesus, you still trust him. Yes, we may feel abandoned, but we're not. Yes, God may appear to be apathetic, but he is not. Yes, God may appear to be late, but he is not. God may appear to be distracted, but he is not. Jesus knows, he cares, and he hears. Now, John was never freed from prison. At a big birthday bash for King Herod, Herodias was still mad, She asked for John's head on a platter. King Herod complied. And John's life on earth ended. And his life in heaven began. But Jesus still knew. He cared and he heard. Let's talk about you for a couple moments before we close If you're in survival mode, maybe you're in survival mode in your marriage. Jesus knows he cares, he hears. If you're in survival mode because of your kids, Jesus knows he cares, he hears. If you're in survival mode because of your finances, Jesus knows he cares, he hears. If you're in survival mode because of your all-across-the-board emotions, Jesus knows, he cares, he hears. Blessed is he. Blessed is she who does not stumble, who does not lose their faith or become disgruntled on account of me. His silence is not his absence. Just in closing, some of you know part of the story of Nadira. Nadira was a Muslim lady. Erica, when she was in Albania, when they were in Albania, Erica poured her life into this Albanian lady. And through a set of incredible circumstances, God performed an undeniable work of healing in her body. And we don't have time, I'm already supposed to be quitting here, but it was an incredible work of healing. And and through that healing, she told Erica, she said, now I know your God is the real God. It's not Allah. And in July of 2019, Erica was able to lead this Muslim lady to Jesus and she placed her trust in him. In fact, she was the first person in this Roma Muslim community to come to Christ. The team had been there five to six years it was hard. You know, when, when you're working with Muslims, and it's not just a religion, but it's a culture, and but she was the first one that came to faith in Christ. Gabe and Erica came back to the States. Erica tried to disciple her in the faith as best as possible, but with the distance, you always wonder, is she continuing in the faith? Because, uh, again, in her Muslim community, there are zero other Christians. Think about that. I mean, think about your being the only Christian in El Dorado Springs. That's the way she is. Zero. Let me give you a recent update. Nadira is continuing in the faith. She was baptized on April 27th, a little over two weeks ago. What's incredible is that a lot of the Muslim community showed up for her baptism. She gave a strong testimony of how Jesus was her Savior and how Christ had forgiven her and given her peace. Well, at this point in the story, it's headed in a direction that, you know, it got the potential to have a fairy tale ending. Fairy tale ending where, you know, she lived a long life, brought other Muslims to Jesus. But today, what is this? May 16th less than three weeks after her baptism, it appears that will not be her story. Let me tell you why. Because after her baptism, Nadira found herself so weak. So some of Gabe and, and Erica's co-workers took her, took her to hospital to see what was going on and and the news was not good. She was given the horrible, horrible, horrible news that she was in the advanced stages of lung cancer and had already spread to her rib cage. And they told her, Nadira, your days are numbered. And here's a, a picture of a very, very sick Nadira. Very soon, possibly this week or in the next few weeks, more than likely, she will pass from this earth to the next. Now, how is Nadira handling this? Remember, she's a new believer. She knew nothing about Jesus three years ago. How is she handling this? You know, many people would become bitter and say, well, if this is the way that a loving God treats me, then I don't want to be part of him. Now, I was okay as a Muslim until I gave my life to Christ and I got cancer. But Let me tell you how Nadira is reacting. There in the hospital, as she was told she had end stages of lung cancer, she began witnessing to the doctors and nurses, trying to evangelize them. She let them know that she had decided to follow Jesus, and there was no turning back. There was no anger towards her Savior. And again, a lot of us were so easily offended. Someone says something cross. Someone doesn't do something, or someone does same thing. We get offended. But not Nadira. Now, the question that I want to just kind of end up with is, why didn't God save faithful John the Baptist from death? Again, Jesus said, "Among those born among women." There is none greater. Why didn't God save John the Baptist from an early death? I don't know. But God knows. He cares and he hears. And why doesn't it appear that God is going to save Nadira from an early and untimely death? I mean, she's a leader in the Muslim community, had the potential of changing so many lives. Why, God, Why, God? wouldn't you spare her life? I don't know. But God knows. He cares. And He hears. So this morning, I don't know everything you're dealing with. But I know that we can all be comforted with the fact that this world is not my home. Aren't you glad? I'm just passing through. But while we're passing through, during our heartaches, during our financial troubles, during our family heartaches, during our health issues, remember? He knows. He cares. He hears. May you find comfort in those words today. Father, Oh, I wish I could have explained everything out to where it just made perfect sense, but Lord, life isn't always that way, and for those that for those that say, Well, you know what, it's all going to turn out great, and we're all going to be healed and we're all going to be released from prison and all that. Lord, uh, we read in the book of Hebrews just for that hall of faith, those people who were just giants, Lord, some of the things they prayed about didn't happen in their lifetime. But yet they were faithful. And so God, whenever it comes down to it, we ask the question and we'll be asking it for the next several weeks, what to do when there's nothing you can do? Father, I pray that in, in our hearts and minds it would just be embedded that we must be faithful to Jesus because this life is just so short, and this life is just kind of a setup for the next life. Lord, help us to be faithful.